Welcome to the Yeshiva Shalmaila. This is David Lechtenstein. This week's program will be speaking about adoption and halacha. This was inspired by Lekoler a number of weeks ago. We spoke about how the adopted parents, according to uh, both Rabaran Salavechik and Rabaran Katla, marched the boy down the aisle, not the uh, the birth, not the birthing parents, which was interesting. Based on Chazal in this week's parsha, we looked into the topic we got from Eretz Yisrael, Rav Yeshua Pfeffer. He's a Pisik, he's a dying for many years, and Rabbi Shuaisis Bezdin, who's written about this topic. He's going to be speaking about hugging. You adopt a little girl or a little boy. Can you hug the child if you're from the opposite agenda? What about yichud? What about calling up to the Tyra? Do you say the adoptive parent or do you say the birth parent? What about saying Kaddish for a, an adopted parent sitting Shiva? These are going to be some of Ksuba, Getz, some of the many shayos we'll be speaking to Rabbi Pfeffer about. We'll be speaking to Dr. Zelig Shore. He adopted a number of children of his own and uh, he he was the go-to person for many years. Charedim in America, when they had questions about adoption, they would call him. He was very close with Rabbi Shlomo Zalman. Always some very astounding things he heard from Rabbi Shlomo Zalman. Rav Shlomo Zalman helped me find my fourth uh, adopted child. He was not mocked in either way. His importance was focused on what would make Shalom bias, what would build a, a bias Nemun be Yisrael, and what would bring happiness to each individual person and each individual couple. Then we're going to have Rabbi Chaim Krause. He's the head of the Jewish Children's Adoptive Network, the only one in the world, you know, those, uh, that's uh, not an Eretz Yisrael, a, a Jewish Children's Adoptive Network. He's adopted three children of his own. What a tzaddik. Here's, here's Reb Chaim. Uh, a lot of people try for 10, 15 years to do other things and don't succeed, and then they're now 40 years old, and now they've decided they want to adopt. Well, if you've got a girl who's 18 and pregnant and wants to place a baby for adoption, these 40-year-olds to her are grandparents. They're not parents anymore. You know what I mean? So if you wait too long, that's also an issue. Okay? Because the babies are usually you know, not born to 30-year-old moms. They're born to 18, 19, or even 16-year-old girls who got pregnant and are going to place the baby um, but they're not going to place the baby with somebody who's as old as their parent. Here are two callers I wanted to comment on. Hello, I'm calling from Eretz Yisrael. I've been listening to the Headlines talk show uh, basically every week, and I uh, work uh, in Eretz Yisrael. I work in a yeshiva that's basically for what you would describe as uh, kids at risk, Bachram from America. And I just wanted to say, I know that recently, last week, you know, and the week before, there was a question, maybe, you know, is it right what the uh, headlines uh, show has been dealing with, the kind of issues um, that the show has been dealing with um, publicly. And I just wanted to to say that it's really um, an incredibly important thing. And Absolutely, Reb David, you should continue and and talking about the kind of topics that um, you've been talking about because basically I'm um, um, you know people are gonna are gonna hear about these topics and teenagers are gonna hear about these topics and if it's not gonna be in the Torah way they're gonna hear about them from another source from a non-Torah perspective and it's absolutely essential that a Torah perspective is given on these topics. And you know what? There are plenty of times that I have to say, plenty of times that I disagree, that I, that I disagree with you, Rev David, <laughs> plenty of times 
that I disagree with the speakers, and that's absolutely okay. You know, that's uh, that there's going to be disagreements. That's absolutely, totally okay, and that's the way it should be, and, and, and it should continue. And, and all the issues and opinions, the Torah opinions should be brought forth, and, and there should be honest, uh, open debate about these topics. And absolutely, I give you a bracha that the show should just be continuing and, and only growing, and, and the, uh, the, those who listen should only, should only increase. And Yadiel Torah v'yadir. Thank you so much. We get many nice callers, and here's a critical caller. You equated the OK together with uh, triangle K and tablet K. Now, I'm not sure. It could be there was cult carriers against the OK, but I wasn't aware of it. I know about the controversy about the Manalapan from Hiroshima and other places, but I don't think that's fair to the OK to equate them. And by the way, the OK is run by a lot of Chabad people, and I know you love the Chabad guys, so I don't know why you would uh, be so hard on them. Now, his point is, is there something against Lubavitch when I, you know, demean the okay for inferior Hesha? And the answer is no. I say, Punkt Fakert, I think who's Makbid more in Kashrist than Chabad? Do you know that Shluchim in the furthest ends of the world won't drink a coffee that's not Chalav Yisrael, where so many people go to Starbucks? Right here in New York, where there's Chalav Yisrael on every corner. So there's nobody who's more Makbid, more Nizar on Kashrist than Chabad. So I think Fakert is out of the tremendous Hakara of the, the Hakpada that both the Rebbe and the Chassidim have to Kashrish to say, and what a poor job this organization is doing. And they are not Chabad. They don't represent Chabad in any way. The founder happened to be Chabadska, but it's not a Chabad organization. So I think Fakert, it's our admiration of Chabad's Hakpada and Kashrish that leads us to point out the weakness of this organization. Our listeners, for the most part, genuinely respect Chabad and its impact on the world and you know, the, the, the Havas Yisrael that Chabad has. So please don't see it as in any way has for show something like that. Before we go to our guests, I want to say a short word on the Parsha. And it says in, in really, in last week's Parsha, Moshe Rabbeinu, but continues in this week's Parsha, what does he say? He says, Hein lo yaminu li, right? They're not going to believe in me, right? V'le yishmu b'kaili. They're not going to Remember, Moshe at this point, he's 67 years away from Egypt. He's coming back some foreigner. He had a three-day experience. He walked out the first day, killed somebody. Then he, he criticized us and Vaviram, and then he, he, he ran for his life, right? And Rabbi Shalom tells him two things. First, the stiff, throw it down, become a nachash. And then the second, I want to say a pshat in this. There are two reasons why maybe Moshe didn't believe in himself for seven days in this week's parsha, a week. He keeps coming up with different reasons why he doesn't want to do the shlichas. He has a lisp. He has a this, etc., etc. So the first thing is Rabbi Shalom says, throw down the stick. Right, and it becomes a nachash. What does that mean? We've spoken in the past how the staff of the shepherd is the power of the shepherd. It's his walking stick. It's his weapon if a, if a wolf comes along. He guides a, a straying sheep. It's, it's a lever if he has to get the stone off the well. It was all his power. He says, throw it down, it becomes a snake. And Moshe runs from it. Remember, where is Moshe coming from? The last time we see Moshe, he's 13 years old. Right? Chazal says he became by mitzvah, and he runs for his life because he killed the mitzri. It was an act of anger. He saw ish mitzri, and he said, "Look at this power." And here he is. He's saying, "If I use power, look, I spent 67 years in Gullahs running for my life because I I used my power." So Rabbi Shem says, "Yes, 
there's two things we could do with power, which is the staff. You could throw it down, and it becomes a nachash. We could abuse it. It's terrifying. So some people say, you know what? I'm not going to speak up. I'm not going to do that. Why? Because who knows? The, the, it could create a churban. What's not to What's not speak about this? What's not speak about that? What's, because why? Because it could be a churban, and, and, and sometimes it can create a churban. So one is the fear of the abuse of power. So abuse of power, we overextend ourselves, we speak up, our kishrin, whatever it may be, we, we get into situations we regret, that's one thing. But then he tells them another thing. Put your hand b'chekecha. Hold your hand close to your vest. Play your cards close to the vest. Stay silent. Don't extend yourself. Don't take any chances. And then you take it out. It's, it's death. In life, we walk a tightrope. We could extend ourselves, take too many chances, do too much, and be- could become a nachash. Mm-mm, that's not good. The other thing is, we could become too conservative, too fearful, too anxious. If I do this, oh my gosh, what's not do that? Like, oh, what's not do that? What? And you know what? And then we die a silent death. All the kayach that the Rabbi Shalom gave, the gift of you to the world, the world will never see it because you're afraid to take your hands, afraid to show your cards, you're afraid to take your hands out of your vest, that's also a type of death. So what's he telling Moshe? Yeah, when it comes to our power, our gifts, our kayach, too close, not good. Too wild, not good. Our nesayin is, how do we use it in moderation? That's the story of uh, the two nisim that uh, Moshe, he shows to Moshe. Let's go to our riddle of the week. We have a tzaka. A lot of time, what does it say? We have in the beginning of Dvarim, Vayitzaku b'nei Yisrael al Hashem. Vayemer Hashem al Moshe, Ma titzak elai, Daber al b'nei Yisrael b'yiso. What does Rosh say? Now's not the right time. What does it say? By tzaka, by tefillah. I heard their cries. And then it says also, Because the fifth time, we just have later on in Bamidbar, by the Mayim Amorim, Later on it says, <coughs> I'm sorry, before, before that in Mishpatim, it says by Ger Yasim Valmonakim Soi Kitsek Eli Shemoya Eshmatzakasai. And what does the Rambam say in Hokas Chuva? We darki had Chuva Lies Hashov Tsoyik Tomid Lefne Hashem. So it seems Tsak is good. Here's the question. The Shulchanarach in Simin Kuf Aleph says, Mugabi the din of Tsaka, the Maganavram in Simin Kuf Aleph of Cotton Gimel says, Mugabi the din of Mashmiya Koiloi Bebese Kimishbal. Right, it's mutter. So he says, Ha'arizal loyhoya mashmiya koiloi afilu vizmira israk b'shabes. B'shabes higbiya koiloi mat. He wouldn't raise his voice at all. That's what the Magen Avram brings. And if you look in the um, the, the, the primagodim over there, in the Eishel Avram, he says, What's the tam? Ki Hashem shemei abalachash. Hashem's able to hear very well. If you if you say quietly, he's able to hear the same way as if you cry. So he says, Shemei abalash, kimoi oisem, marabiya koiloi oisem idai, and therefore... And the Mishnah Rura Paskins, that even by Psukhi de Zimra, you shouldn't be misspal Bakoil. So the question is, why did a Paiskim down to the Mishnah Rura say that you shouldn't be Mashmiya Koilai? But Tfilasai, 
where I've cited 10 psukim in the Torah, where we see, Vayishma Hashem Tzakasam, this week's parsha, Vayitzak Ba'ishal Hashem, what happened between the Chumash and the Lamais, how he passed in Halacha. That's our riddle of the week. At the end of the program, as always, we'll have the winners to last week's the and the correct answers that we believe to last week's riddles, we'll, we'll play them. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's 02-372-0304. Let's go to our fabulous guests. Joining us from Yerushalayim is Rabbi Yeshua Pfeffer. He is uh, formerly a Dayan of Rabbi Weiss. He's the editor of Tzarechian. He's a Rav a Ram in a Yeshiva. He's a Rav in Ramot. Welcome, Rabbi Yeshua. Thank you, Rabbi David. Good to be back on the show. So, Rabbi Yeshua, you've written about adoption in Halacha, so let me ask you some questions. Is there a mitzvah for a childless couple to adopt? So, I, I think that there's certainly a mitzvah for a childless couple to adopt. There is a question among Christians whether that mitzvah would apply specifically to a Jewish child or even to a non-Jewish child. And Rav Moshe Feinstein speaks about it when he, Rav Moshe actually makes a comparison between advantages and disadvantages of a Jewish child versus a non-Jewish child. But certainly, to adopt a Jewish child is a tremendous mitzvah. The Gemara says, And that doesn't necessarily mean a yosem, an orphan from his parents, but a child that there's nobody to take care of him. And, and so many him. you know what? Especially post-Holocaust, Farim, like this uh, they speak about this tremendous virtue of adopting a child. So, so number one, there's a mitzvah of taking care of a child, of, of helping a Jewish child. Um, perhaps in your question, though, you also mean to say, all right, let's leave aside taking care of a Jewish child. Is there actually a mitzvah of bringing a child up and so on. And there we don't find a formal mitzvah. Rav Moshe writes, let's say, if it's a non-Jewish child, there's no formal mitzvah of adopting a child. But, you know, the Pasek in Yishayal speaks about the saris that tells the Kaddish Baruch Hu, hey, nani eitz I'm a dry twig, meaning I don't touch eternity. And then the Pasek there says, okay, if you'll keep the bris, then when you'll have your eternity another way. But, just like bringing up a child, you do touch eternity on some level, meaning your chinuch, your upbringing, your relationship, your love, your intimacy with that child will carry on. So formal mitzvah in that sense, less, but is there a virtue? Is there, is there a value? I definitely think so. Okay. And the, the, the Hagdam, like you said, Hagdam and the Chayin talks about it in Yavamas. In the Chayin Yavamas. 
correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and the, the, the Shlomo Kluger writes about it. Shlomo Kluger is a Yachid, I think. And he, yeah, he, 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 he discusses whether you became the mitzvah of Puravu. It's the very first shiva in Evan Ezra, yes. And he says, since since it says I'm a gadol yasim v'yisayim b'tech beis de malov tuliyoday, Ebazai says l'chayri makayim puravu. Or he says, or he says it's not, it's kiilu, but it's not a a mamish. Right. So it sounds like he says that it could be a kiyum of puravu, but I have not seen that in in any other sefer. Meaning, I think he's very much a das yachid on that because the pastors puravu is when you're bringing a new child into the world, you're populating the world. The pasuk in Bereshit says, right, milus ha'aret, you have to fill the world with 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 people. When you're sure, Rabbi sure, Rabbi Shlomo Kluger's argument would be the other way. If you adopt a child that would otherwise have would not have a home and could could you. You know, and, and there's a, there's a, psychologists would tell you that kids who don't grow up in a healthy manner often become criminals and recidivist criminals. So, and that's why it's ki'ilu yaldai. So you can bring a child into the world. You can bring a child who would otherwise become, you know, a, a degenerate or an affliction upon society and turn them into an asset. And that's ki'ilu yaldai. And the argument would be is it's even greater because if you didn't have the child, okay, but now you have a child who could t- potentially be a weapon to against society and you're turning him into to an asset, it's even better than creating the child. And that would be Rabbi Shlomo Kluger's argument. It, it would be his argument, but I think it's a weak argument concerning the mitzvah of Pru Urvu, where it says, Umilu And I think what you're saying is certainly the value, the virtue, the, the, the great level, elevation of bringing up a child, and like you say, saving him from potential downfall and, and raising him. But I think it's not by chance that the, uh, I, I haven't seen the Rav Shlomo Kluger mentioned in, in other Poiskim that speak about adoption. Uh, the whole gamut of Poiskim, I, I have not seen this. So I, I hear the point, certainly in terms of the elevation, the virtue, the value, but to say this is a cum approval, I think that's far-reaching. Okay. Is there an obligation of Chibadava aim? Is there a towards an adoptive parent? So, you know, the, the, the mitzvah of Kibbut Avo'eim gets into the first luach in the, in the, in the luchos of the Torah. And I think it's, it's not by chance that it's in the first luach because the mitzvah of honoring parents is similar to the mitzvah of honoring a Kodesh Baruch Hu. In fact, they go together. HaKadosh Baruch Hu brings you into the world. He's our creator. And our parents bring us into the world because they also create us in a physical sense. And therefore, those two mitzvahs go together. It's not a benadam lechaveru mitzvah. It's a benadam lamakim. It's in the first luach. And then the question that you ask is a delicate question. Would the same mitzvah apply to adopted parents? Or would you say, certainly there's a mitzvah benadam lechaveru concerning adoptive parents, but you wouldn't have the full formal mitzvah of Bein Adam Lamakim. And in, in person that I've seen, it, it really splits between these two ways. Some, some say, listen, you have to honor your parents like we find concerning a father-in-law. All right, is there a mitzvah of Kibbut uh, for the fa- for a father-in-law? Um, so that there's a mitzvah to honor him, for sure, but it's not your formal mitzvah of Kibbut Avayim. While some say, yeah, Kilu, kilu Yodoi, just like we find other halachas that are um, predicated on the Kilu Yodoi, for example, naming. Okay, the Chassam Sefer and others say that it's okay for a child to be called up to the Torah by using the name of his adoptive father because Ki'ilu Yol, the Ramban, in fact, in Bamidbar, the Ramban speaks about Sarah Bas Asher, that she's called a sister in, in, in Bereshis, while in, in Bamidbar she's called the daughter. And he says, well, 
she was the daughter of his wife, and, and he adopted her. That's what the Ramban says. And yet she's called Bath Asher. And therefore, the, you, uh, so if it's good enough for, for the, to have to carry the name of the parent, then you would also have the mitzvah of Kibbut of him. So it's, again, a delicate question. Do you, do you say, well, it's not a formal child, and therefore it's not a full mitzvah of Kibbut Avayim. By the way, the same would apply for questions of Avelas. Do you have a full mitzvah of Avelas? But certainly it would apply on, on the moral level. You know, sometimes we have to get past the question of, you know, mitzvah, not mitzvah. Just to make it relevant to today's parshas, the, the Gemara in Sanhedrin on your Testament Bay says, uh, and it says, Basia gave birth to Moshe, the Chibasi Yolda, right? Right. Right. Uh, so She's called Moshe is called the son of Basia because because right. she was Moshe Nefesh and she was Megabalim. So Lagabi Kibudav Aim, in other words, we what inspired this? We're gonna play that probably place to hear that message again, but the somebody asked uh Rabaran Salavechik, the adoptive parents want to take him down to the Chapa and suddenly bingo, the birth hmm. parents showed up twenty years later, they hmm. want to. And he says and he brings a medrash in this week's parish. Right, somebody who who son was Magadol and brought him into his house and saved his life. Mm-hmm. So you want to know is there a mitzvah kibudav aim? The washing of Chazal is yoisemi Notwithstanding a very problematic gemara at the end of Saita, which says that uh, I forgot who it was who was Magadol his grandson in his house, and he says he's not mechayiv bekibudav aim. So it seems there are steers in Chazal about this. Well, the Chazam says Chazam says it does write explicitly that. There is a mitzvah of Kibbutz Avraham. Chazam Sofer and Orachaim. This is where he speaks about about saying Kaddish. I think Kaddish about your biological parents versus adoptive parents. And there he says that there, there would be a mitzvah of Kibbutz Avraham uh, on on adoptive parents because they're considered they're considered your parents. At the same time, he makes a distinction. He says your biological parents would would take precedence in terms of mourning, if I remember correctly. Um, but it's it's a, it's an important. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Saying Kaddish for an adopted peer, somebody adopted a son, and this, well, not the end of time, not 120, the parent dies. Can the uh, does the adopted son can he or does he have a chiv to say Kaddish for his biological parents or the adopted parents for the for adopted parents for, for both? Talk about both. Right. So, so please can speak about this, and it's interesting. I think in this, this is one of the areas where we find that there's a distinction between uh, the halacha and between the regular secular law, because in secular law, at least in the constitution that, that I'm aware of, adoption process can actually detach a child from his biological parents legally, and he is only considered the child of his adoptive parents. But the, the halacha doesn't, doesn't go with that. First of all, for Yuchsin purposes, of course, um, and that's why some priests are concerned about issues of Yuchsin, that a person might end up marrying his sister if, if we lose the Yuchsin chain because of adoption. Um, and, and also in terms of it doesn't detach you from your biological parents in terms of uh, mourning, uh, in terms of saying Kaddish, and, and so on. And therefore, yes, it, it, would, it would still um, apply to your, the, the mourning, the abelos would still apply to your uh, biological parents. Um, at the same time, of course, uh, it would be absolutely um, it would be absolutely right to be Miss Abel on your adoptive parents. Also, the question would be: Does that mean that you don't write tefillin? Let's say uh, on the first day, do, do you write tefillin or not? And there, there are places who write that even though it's correct to be Miss Abel on your 
adoptive parents, but you don't have a head to not to wear tefillin and therefore you should do a bit thinner um, because because it's not your, your formal parents. Now, this is, again, it, would, it literally goes back to the previous discussion uh, because obviously if if you go with a Chachma Shlomo, with the Shlomo Kluger, that this is Ki'ilu, Yolda, you take that literally and you say it's, it's Pruvu, then the same thing would apply to mourning. It would be a Chiv Avelus and therefore you wouldn't put on tefillin. But you know, every every chumra here is also a color, so it's not it's not a passion. Okay. You want to go through quickly the Ramesha or what the Pais can discuss adopting a Jewish versus a non Jewish child, assuming it was Oh, well it's it's really it's kind of pluses and minuses. Um Ramesha speaks about the the pluses of a Jewish child because you have the mitzvah of adopting a Jewish child. That that's a you know basic plus, uh, number one. Um Number two, and so on. And I would say number three, you know, he's a Jewish child is part of the family. You know what I mean? You're adopting someone who is shayach to you, so of course that has an advantage. At the same time, Rav Meshach writes that there's also a disadvantage of a Jewish child because of Yuchsin issues. Um, often Jewish children that are up for adoption are of questionable parentage. One doesn't know the Yuchsin. Sometimes they would have a halachic classification of a Stuki or a Sufi and different halachic classifications in terms of Yuchsin. And that would not be an issue for a non-Jewish child that you convert when you bring him into the family through a process of Gerakatan, and then that wouldn't be an issue of Yuchsin. You have a disadvantage of a non-Jewish child, of course, number one, because you don't have the special virtue, the special value of bringing in a Jewish child. Number two, because you have a Gerakatan issue that you're going to have to notify him when he's 13, that he's adopted and given give him the chance of actually reneging, of, of rejecting his becoming Jewish and going back to being a non-Jew. Again, if it's a good, healthy and, and you know, warm family, why should he? But nevertheless, you have to give given that, that option, uh, which of course doesn't apply to a Jewish child. So Rav Moshe says ultimately, you know, it, it's better to prefer, it, one should prefer uh, a Jewish child and he certainly recommends that over non-Jewish children. I should also mention that the question of Jewish versus non-Jewish children is a big question when it comes to non-observant couples because the whole Gerakaton is predicated, it assumes Kabbalah's mitzvahs, and the assumption of Kabbalah's mitzvahs is only going to be a relevant assumption where we're speaking about observant couples. When it's a Jewish non-observant couple, then the adoption of a non-Jewish child becomes much more complicated. Okay, talk about, um, do you have to reveal to the child that they're adopted, or should you reveal? So this is mentioned in, in certain places, Kim. Um, you know, do you have to reveal uh, to the child that, that he or she is adopted? Uh, but it's not mentioned in a, in a in a strictly halachic, but more in, in a moral issue, that there are some that speak about it also in a halachic issue because of the yuchsin issue, right? Shema Yisabasa Choysoy and so on. You know, you should know that you're not my biological child, you're somebody else's biological child, and that could be relevant for yuchsin. But aside from the yuchsin issue, it's of course a moral issue, and it would be right to tell the child at a certain stage that he's an adopted child. Um, you know, otherwise, you're harboring this deep, dark, kind of secret, keeping it from the child. Perhaps it's good to keep it from him when he's a young child growing up. You want him to grow up equal to the other children. You want him to be healthy in his uh, you know, mental state and that there shouldn't be a competition. But once the child is old enough, and I'm sure that there are many psychological assessments of when this should be done, um, then I think it's definitely the morally right thing to do to inform a child that he's adopted, that he came from other biological parents, and then he has the right and he has the prerogative to pursue 
use to search out, to seek, to think about where he's come from, what his background is, and so on, or to choose not to. But that should be his choice and not the adopted, adoptive parents' choice. Interesting. I see Ramesha discusses this topic, and he really is quite worried um, about, you know, marriage of, you know, uh, uh, you know of your yeah. issues. They may marry. So it doesn't seem like a really remote issue. I mean, he, he is going to have adoptive parents, so obviously he's going to be very attuned to the fact that he shouldn't marry his sister. Well, the, the, adopted, the adoptive parents might die, and, and you know, and, and those people know. Don't forget, this is a concern that's raised by the Gemara. The Gemara already raises the concern of Shemayus Adatachais in a different context, not a yeah. context of adoption, adoption. But, the con- right, but the concern is a Talmudic concern. The story about the I, I don't disagree with you. Boys. I don't disagree that it's it's a possibility. But my question is, is if you know we had on somebody who spoke about um, the bullying that an adopted kid could um, occurs in school, where they get made fun of and this and that. Oh, you're adopted. You don't know. So when you take the real life um, reality, you know the realities of bullying, which are very real, and do it against sort of lottery-like possibilities of of um, something happening, you, you would just have to say, right. you but have to I say that. You, and I think Ramesha would agree, and he would say, don't, you don't have to tell him when he's 11 years old. You can tell him when he's 18, you know, bench when I sort of hook, but before 18, no one's going to be getting Yeah, well, I, I agree with that. Yeah, right. So the age so, would be so, very, the age would be very, um, yeah. yeah. But, but it's, 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 now let's talk about what is arguably the biggest Shila, and that is the two, well, two big Shilas. One, one is, you know, more common than the other. One would be, you know, a mother, can she hug and kiss the child or, or the father, right? Um, and 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 Yichud, and the reason why I say hugging and kissing is because well, why don't you you answer the question? What would you say about these two very real everyday problems, Yichud and and Chibuk and Isha? I just think it's fascinating to see the differences of opinion between Toyskin on this issue. Um, it's very much a discussed issue in contemporary Toyskin, meaning 20th century Toyskin. And it's also interesting to find that it wasn't discussed in, in, gen- in previous generations. Um, and, and some mentioned this, that it wasn't discussed and, and tried to explain why not. But in the discussions between Toyskin concerning this question, we have really you know, diametrically opposed positions. On the one hand, we have the Titeliezer's position. This is also um, Rav Moshe concerning hugging and kissing. Titeliezer is concerning Yichud as well. Um, each one is a different. These are different questions and they rely on, on somewhat different reasoning. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the kind of grouping of Toyskin would still apply. And, and to those one, Michael, you know, Rav Moshe says very matter-of-factly. He says, well, uh, a father kissing and hugging an adopted daughter or a mother with her son, that's not related to a riot. There's nothing sexual No problem, there. he says. Right? Correct, where it's not, not their achiba. He says this is a, a way of showing love parental love rather than something that's related to a riot, and therefore it's just not a problem. He just, he almost, write it Bederich Agav, the Shiva isn't even yeah. speaking about that. He erases it. He, yeah. Yeah. It, it's really, it's really quite, um, quite remarkable. While, when you look at, at other poskim like Minchas um, Yitzchak and the Rashmul um, Vazner, 
the more chassidish the paiskim. Shevet Halevi, well, you know, men chassid chak, a lot of chassidish. Hungarian, Hungarian, you know. Hungarian, yeah, Hungarian, Shevet right, but it's not just that, also, right, well, again, strimal wearing, you could call them if you want, yes, but it's not just them, it's also, I think, the Nismas of Ram brings from Rishlum Azalman, also, that also wrote that it's forbidden, and they write, especially the more chassidic or strimal wearing, they're right, you know, it's of his raya, raya and like I mean, the, hello, there's, the, there's a letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe on this. Right, also brought in the Nishmat of oh, correct. Did you see, like, fire against it. Um, oh, also um, fire He with an adopted kid, right? Right, he said, he, he mentioned that it's Yehorek Zalyavo, which is amazing, amazing. Look at, look at the difference in, in the, in the, in the approach, in the mindset, also, um, mentioned mentioned by the Chazanish, and and it, it's fascinating, I think, to see the, these differences. And of course, the difference is: do you follow the kind of more formal approach and say, "Listen, this is not family in a formal sense; these are adopted children, and therefore the Isuria Arias would apply," or do you follow the more kind of time of the cry, if you want? It's not a time of the cry, but it's the it's the logic behind why is it permitted for a father and a mother to hug and kiss their kids because it's parental, because it's a show of affection rather than something which is of a sexual nature, and that's why it's permitted. And then the same would apply also for parents. Now, I would say there's also a, a policy issue, and this is mentioned a, a little bit in, in some of the in some of the Tzitzeliezer like, mentions this, for example. And, and the policy issue is, you know, we need to think about kids that are up for adoption, and, and we need to think about this in two ways. Number one, which parent is going to adopt a child that is not going to be able to hug and kiss? So maybe in some previous generation where the, the home was, was truly a, a castle and, and the father was, you know, kissing a, a child would be inappropriate. All right, I, I don't know. Um, but certainly nowadays, I mean, which parent would adopt such a child? And then think about the child. The, the other kids in the family are all, you know, being hugged and kissed and just this adopted child is, is not. You know, what, what would that do to him? So, so there is a policy consideration now. That wouldn't be enough. You know, we're not making just based on policy considerations, but where we have to start in, then certainly this would be a, 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 a tipping, you know, to tip the scales, as it were. This would be a, an important point to take into consideration. And by the way, the Yichud issue, no less, because Yichud can be so complicated. Uh, Rav Moshe has a different cheshman for Yichud. Tzitzeliezer has a cheshman for Yichud based on the Levush. Okay, the, the, these, are, these are, you know, complex questions. The Levush says, why is it permitted to have Yichud between, between parents? So again, uh, because there's no concern for the, uh, for, for the, for the lust for the sexual lust. So would that also apply to adopted children? And then there's a question, of course, of brothers and sisters. These are all big questions. But you look at the place, you see these two very uh, drastically opposed positions, right? The, the Rav Moshe, the Tzitzit, but, so, but, but let's, let's divide it for our listeners, okay? Rav Moshe writes very clearly, um, as does the Tzitzit, Rav Moshe says, Chibuk, the Nishuk, is, is not an issue whatsoever. Um, and he quotes the Shaf. He says, this that Chibuk, the Nishuk, has to be Dera Chibas Bia. But he says, Masha'enkein, Damirayim, Hu Mahabkim, Hu Manashkim, Lepnei Seim, Vachei Seim, that it was, wasn't Dera Chibu Bia, is absolutely mutter, and he stole that suit to an adopted child, right? Right, but and, as you mentioned, for parents, not for, not for brothers and sisters. Now, when it comes to Yichud, right, Rav Moshe is not dismissive, and Correct. he is, he says that it's very, 
very problematic. And the one that is not there is the Tzitz Eliezer. Could you walk... Well, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir has a kula. Rabbi Meir has an very important kula. He said, yeah, go ahead. Well, he says, he says, especially in adoptive parents, he says, because listen, this girl, the daughter, she's living at home. So she's going to tell mommy, right? She, she, this is going to be found out. And therefore, he says there's much, there's more room to be makel here than in regular uh, uh, situations, circumstances of yichud, because there's a special mira, there's a special fear of getting found out, and that's why he has a special reason to be makel. Uh, but yes, he's not makel in a, in a in a broader way like the titilieder. Right. So so walk us through what he says. Ramosha says, I guess ishtevir would be you could be makel, even though there are times you should be machmir here, you could be makel. But but the titilieder, the titilieder. It, it takes a different opinion. Could you walk our listeners through the Tzitzeliezer's opinion? Yeah, so the Tzitzeliezer is, is based on uh, the Levush. Um, the the Levush writes that there's no problem of Yichud between parents and children uh, because he says, what's the reason for the Isser Yichud? And this we find already in, in the Rambam. It's not, the Levush is not making this up. That the reason for the Isser of Yichud is not a Zerisa cause. It's because Yichud can lead to illicit sexual behavior to relations that are forbidden. That's the reason why there's an Issa Yichud. And the Tzitzelia takes that a step further and says, okay, if that's the reason for the prohibition of Yichud, then the same leniency that we find for biological parents can also be applied to non-biological parents. Because just like for the biological parents, there's no, like we saw in Ramosha, right? There's no Chibas Bia for, for adoptive parents also, right? It's parental. It's, it's, it's a hug and a kiss from a parent to a child. So the same thing says the Tzitzeliezer for Yichud. The Issa Yichud would also not apply. Even the Rav Moshe does not say this for the Yichud. But the Tzitzeliezer, based on the reverse, says that this would apply. Um, while other postgames give two reasons why this wouldn't be true. Um, again, Minchas Yitzchak and, and Ravasa, they say, number one, you know, time de cry is very nice, uh, but it's not good enough to be makel. We're not going to use this to be makel on an isodoraita of yichud. And number two, they say, well, when it comes to parents, it's not just about the fact that we have a parental love and therefore there's no concern for any kind of arayas, but it's also something beyond that. The Gemara and Sanhedrin, that there's no tambia uh, concerning a person's mother and so on. And that's something which is biological. They say that, that we only know in biology. That you can't apply to adoptive parents. And therefore, we have this specific machreka um, concerning uh, the issue of yichud between the tzitzilias. And like I said, we make on this um, and, um, and, and other achreinim who are machreinim, who are not makel. In fact, there's, so the Dvar Halacha. Dvar Halacha, he writes that yichud is more severe for adoptive kids than general yichud. Because over here you have liberty gaspar. You're familiar with your kids, with your adoptive kids. And because you have liberty gaspar, you have this familiarity. Therefore, even colors that might apply to general situations of yichud wouldn't apply to adopted children. And, and this makes life ex- you know, exceedingly difficult when you have adopted children. Rabbi Yeshua, thank you very much for this mini share. That was really fabulous. Thank you, Rev. David. Always a pleasure to be on, and uh, it should be a Mavit's Torah Rabbin. Call to Amen. Call to Bye-bye. All the best.
Joining us from Lakewood, New Jersey, is Dr. Zelig Shore. He's a Talmud of Ner Yisrael. He's a, a Muslim of our Rudiman. He's a doctor as well, a retired doctor. Dr. Shore's history is for 13 years, uh, his wife and him were not Zeichet to Zeresh al Kayama, so they adopted four children sequentially. There was no Bani Elam at the time, no organizations, and then subsequently the Rabbi Nishon blessed them and they had four of their own. So he's helped, spent the last 30 some odd years helping from a people through the adoption process. He's a Talmud of Shlomo Zalman as well. He spent many hours with him discussing shallows about adoption. Welcome, Reb Zelig. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, welcome. Tell us some of the halachic shilas that you discussed with Rabbi Shlomo Zalman about adoption. The biggest shaila that is only not only Rabbi Shlomo Zalman, but it's a standard question in all adoption is, do I adopt a Jewish baby or a non-Jewish baby? And I find that the simplest analogy is that the Hasidic world want specifically a Jewish child. The Rachmet Rivka always fought for only a Jewish child. While of Moshe, because he was concerned of the Shiloh of Mamzerus, he always felt you should take a non-Jewish child. And that's the difference between Litvish and the Hasidic world. Rav Shlomo Zalman helped me find my fourth uh, adopted child. He was not mocked in either way. His importance was focused on what would make Shalom bias, what would build a, a bias Nemun Yisrael, and what would bring happiness to each individual person and each individual couple. So he never really took a stand on either way. So let's, let's start with that. Ramosha was concerned about Mamzerus. Now, ostensibly, if the Mamzerus issue could be solved, would it would have he been more pro or Jewish and non-Jewish? I mean, did he? Did you ever ask him that question? Absolutely. Rav Chaim felt that if you're able to clarify that 100%, then yes, you should go with the Jewish child. In the island of reality, how easy is it to get a Jewish child? Like, are we talking about, you know, in, in Lundish, or can you get a Jewish child today? Because we've heard, you know, we've heard it's exceedingly difficult. Today, with all the pills that are available and the abortions, back then, Eretz Yisrael was the place to acquire a Jewish child. It's the, it makes the most sense. But throughout America, there are plenty of Jewish children that were available. However, today, Jewish girls abort and they'll travel anywhere to get that abortion. It is very, very difficult to find. Just because it's difficult, I tell everybody, it's not about percentages. You're only looking for one. To find one shouldn't be that difficult. And therefore, do whatever you can to be able to search and seek and, and reach the goals that you're looking for. Now, why do you feel, or why did they feel absent the Shiloh Mamzeris, Jewish child? The real answer, <laughs> I'm scared to really say this, but the real answer is because there is one issue which is called the primal wound. And that is that no matter what, every adoptive situation Every adopted child has certain issues. That's not to say the biological children do not in any way. But in adoption, they have that one primal issue, why was I given up? To add to that in a, from a non-Jewish family, that puts another stress on that child growing up. It is very, very difficult for couples today 
when they adopt and for whatever reason they find that the children are not following in the derech that they would like it to be. And I tell parents before they go to even seek adoption that if you're doing it, if you're going to do adoption because you're doing a mitzvah and you're saving this child, then don't do it. That's not what it's about. It's about that an adoptive parent has so much love that they're exploding and they want to share that love. If the child gives you an hour of nachas or 120 years of nachas, it's not tit for tat. The other way, as soon as the child does something wrong, the first reaction is, I did this and this for you. How can you do this to me? It's not about that. It's about acquiring the nachas and the fulfillment that you're looking to fulfill and give that love to a child. That's it. You had a, a number of very important points. You said that if the child is from a different culture, right, it's not that, it's not an issue of yichis, et cetera, but it's more, I don't know what the Racham Strifka, what his issue was, but it's more about, it just creates, it's further trauma in the child's life growing up. Did, did I get Absolutely. that right? Absolutely. And was that the Racham Strifka Rebbe's reason, or his was more about, um, you know? No, he refused, he refused to go into it. He said, of Zelig, this is this is via kalp. That's it. That's it. Don't go into it. And I fought him on it. We were very, very close. I fought him on it. And he refused to bend in any way. That's not to say that there aren't successful adoptions in any way. There are many couples. But like anything in life, people with issues, some wear it on their sleeve and some don't. And many times an adoption issue People don't know what's behind closed doors. I do. <laughs> and it's it's very, very difficult for a couple who gives their entire neshama and their, all their kayaf and their love to, quote, unquote, be hurt in a certain fashion. There are those who are extremely matliach, but I can count them. I can count them on my hands. Explain that. To, explain that. What does that mean you can count them? The primal wound is a very painful wound that cannot be corrected. For instance, when I first began helping, grandparents would call and parents would call them. You know, my, my child, my grandchild, my friend, my sister. And I would say, I don't talk to anybody except the couple themselves. Because as much as a parent hurts and loves for their child, they can say they feel with their child's pain but they're not going through the pain that the child is going through, not having that Zeresh Chayoma. And therefore, I speak to the couples themselves. So they put everything into raising this child. When the child has questions, when the child is expected to have questions, you have to give answers. The Tzarifka always guided his Kehillah, or people who asked him for Shilas, that you don't tell the child growing up that he was adopted. I felt that was very, very wrong. But I'm not a Rafkitsvifka. I'm well, 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 a little guy. Why did you think it was wrong? It's wrong because a child has to confront that from a very early stage. From an early stage, I made a picture of my immediate family, of my wife's immediate family, and I made the pictures 
into a puzzle. And I included my adopted children as a piece to the puzzle. And I said, I was this puzzle. My wife was came from this puzzle. You came from a different puzzle. And we put the puzzle pieces together and we showed us as one whole family the pieces fixed. I would write a song for all my kids. Each one, every night, they would sing it. It wasn't to do anything else but how much we wanted you and sought for you and fought for you and did everything in the world. And that's what every adoptive parent does and wants to do. They want to have a normal life. They want to share carpool, you know, how painful it is for a mother, a young mother, to have to hear her friends talking about, oh, I picked up this one, oh, my kids are so cute, and I bought this, and I bought this dress, and I bought this. How painful. People are not used to it. They don't understand everybody, every word, how it penetrates the heart. I mean, every case, every case is different. I had a story way back, way, way back. A very big rove called me that his daughter could not have children, and could they call me? I said, of course. And they call me. And he says, okay. We, I said, the first thing, what are your akpadas? You want a Jewish child? You want a Jewish mother? Do they both have to be Jewish? You know, this is the view of this one. This is the view of that one. And he said to me straight out, he said, I want that the parents should have tyrus on the shpacha and that the woman should die in childbirth. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> So you're you're shocked, okay? You can imagine how I felt on a phone that, and I'm beyond myself. I I didn't I didn't even know their words to answer something like that. Is that an extreme? Of course it's an extreme, but there are but to say that it even exists was mind-boggling. What did you what what did you respond? I, I didn't know what to say. I said you're not serious. You know. Every time you put another hakpada on, there's only so many babies. You only want one. That's true. But there's only so many babies for for thousands of couples around the world. And every hakpada that you put on brings the percentage of chances that much less. Did they ever? I'm curious. Did this couple ever adapt? Yes. And, and I guarantee you, I guarantee you, not only was there not Taras on the Shpacha, but the mother did not die either. Okay, that's one case. Just to bring it up, you know, there are other people that are wonderful people in this world. Unbelievable. We never had that in the past. Who take children with disabilities, Down syndrome, serious drug issues. I, I can go on and on. I, don't, I, I just had on a fellow. He runs the Jewish Adoption Network. He adopted a whole bunch of his ch- children as well. Whoa, oh, my da- gosh. Down That's syndrome. Crap. I mean, just there's got to be a special place in Ghanaian for these people, no? Absolutely. Absolutely there has to be, and there is, and there is. You know, certain people do it out of the goodness of their heart that help strictly for the sake of helping. That's it. Just to help another couple see simcha and, and light in their life. I remember by one Rosh Hashiva, his son was almost a paraplegic. And there's laws. There's certain states are more lenient than others. But it was very difficult if you have a parent who's paraplegic to qualify to become a parent, an adoptive parent. Adoptive rules are so perverted that they they judge who can be a parent and who can't be a parent. 
and it, it, it's mind-boggling. But what I did was I, I told the agency I have a single mother, and they they were they knew me for years, and they said, Doc, you already became so liberal, you're allowing a single woman to adopt. I said, yeah, let's go. And they did it until right before they went to court. I called them up. I said, I, I want to make an addendum before you go to court that the paraplegic father, you know, is so-and-so. And they go, well, 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 what are you talking about? I said, don't worry about it. Just let, He's like, I lose my license. I said, no, you won't lose your license. God's on our side. Just go. Just do it. And that was it. And we pushed it on through. You have people that are helping couples around the world that are, that are unbelievable. I mean, who, who, who can match up to the Makum Kaidish of Rav Shleima? Who started Bene Olam? Who who can come to his to, to his shoelaces? You know, we never had this. We never had this in the past. He and the world today with Chesed is unreal. I got a call from a Zeda, and the Zeda says, Doctor Shur, I need your help. I said, Tell me. And he says, My my children have. Two gesunte children. I said, that's beautiful. Baruch Hashem, says, But they just left their baby in the hospital. I said, what? He says, they left their baby because there's medical issues and I, and they, they were told not to bring the baby home. I said, I'll take the baby. He said, they gave it over to a Catholic agency because oh they didn't want any records of it. And I immediately called Rav Yaakov Weinberg at that time and I said, Rebbe, what do I do? He goes, what do you need? He said, I said, I had meetings with all different specialists and doctors. I said, it's going to take tens of thousands of dollars of medical care. He says, I'll cover it, whatever it is. I said, and who do I choose? What couple? He goes, whoever you choose is the one that is the right one. So I called the Catholic agency and I said, you know, this is Dr. Shore, and I'm going to make this very short. I put an injunction against your agency, and you will never touch a Jewish child. That Jewish child is ours. The lawyers got involved, and I had 48 hours. It took me, there was used to be a commercial on, I think it was for Delta, and it was on an Army base, and all the Army guys were squeezing into a phone booth, and they made a phone call to a travel agency, and the lady answers it. And he kept passing the phone on to another guy and another guy and another guy. And at the end of the day, the owner of the travel agency comes over to this one agent and says, did you get any calls today? She says, I only got one. (laughs) But it was all call waiting. And we came up with one couple that we felt was the best. And I called him up. It was on a Matoy Shabbos. And I said to him, okay. He says, no, I won't do it without a bracha from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. I called who I had a call, and he said that no one could get through to the Rebbe now. He said, it's a yard site of the Friedeke Rebbe, and there's no way. So I called him back. I said, how would you, would you take the Boston or Rebbe, the, the original? And he says, yeah, I'll take a bracha from the, from the original. So I called the Boston and he's, I told him the situation. This is Ramayshala in, in, yeah. in Baraba, yeah. And he said, okay, call. He, uh, he said, I'll, I'll speak to them. I, I, I take that back. Let me step back one. Let me step back just two minutes. He wasn't, he was going to call me back. He, he was going to call me back. 
I told my wife, I said, I got to get out. My head's about to explode. I haven't had a Shabbos. I haven't had anything. My mind is racing. We took a babysitter. She came into the house. I went out with my wife for a half hour, and I came back, and I said, no, is there any calls? She goes, you got two calls, the Lubavitcher and the Bostoner. But I called back the Bostoner, and he said to me, after all this work, he said, under no circumstances are you to take this couple. I said, Rebbe, how can you, this is all, I, I, I'm out. By, by tomorrow morning, I'm done. He goes, I'm sorry, you are not to give it to this couple. I called Rev Weinberg, and I said, Rebbe, what do I do? He says, Zelig, you did your estadless zehu at 6 o'clock in the morning. I got a call, the baby died. Oh, interesting. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Shezach was, I was very close to the Misha, and I would fly in on, maybe you're too young, but on People's Express, it was for $19, I would be able to go from Cleveland to New York, and I would go to be at his early morning shachas. I got a call from after Misha was nifter of Tanis Esther. I left immediately to Eretz Yisrael, and I was to Brooklyn, and I met Bambi. I don't know if you remember Bambi, but Bambi was a midwife of all midwives, the mothers of all midwives, but she never had children of her own. She saw too much what went on in the hospitals with the type of mothers and so forth, whether it was drugs or whatever, and she just never was able to adopt. And she called me that she had a situation, and we flew out to Eretz Yisrael. I did a bris. I gave a name to this baby. And on my way to the, not on my way, but at the airport, coming back to America, the police came and took the baby. I was ice bench. And I immediately called Shlomizaman and he said, don't worry. Wait a month. You'll see that everything will be good. To the day, one month later, he calls me, Shlomizaman, that he had a little bicycle for me. To the day. So Shlomizaman was a malach. I don't know what else to say. Anybody that I took to the Shlomo Zalman, his bracha was Bukuyim. I tell people there's two things that they can always do. Israel, unfortunately, per capita, is the largest abortion center of the world. Per capita. There it's Israel. But if you stand outside the street corner of the abortion clinics, you can for sure negotiate with any of the women to try to get yourself a child. Wow. It's all, it's all from the heart. When they say that a, a biological child is born from the womb and an adopted child is born from the heart, that's MSVATIV. Love goes a long way. And the more the parent puts into it, the more they want to enjoy the nachas that they see and will see. My bracha to every couple is that they should fill their house with symphony of children and bring lichtikeit to their entire home. I remember with Rav Chaim Stein, I happen to know what the baby is beforehand, if it's a male or a female. And Rav Chaim called me in, I was in the car, and he wants to see me in his office. I come down and he says, And I said, can it happen in English? He says, yeah. I said, I think the Rosh Hashiva is extremely selfish. And I never saw Rav Chaim's eyes open as much as it did. And he says, what do you mean? I said, right now, the house is dark. Your son is in the situation that he is in. And his Rebbe stands by his side all these years. 
What happens when the boy becomes 12, 13, and he goes away to yeshiva? It's dark in the house. But if you get a girl, lift it for another four or five years. I never, wow. I never saw a smile. He says, oh, I knew it was a girl. I was able to say that to him. Very well. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Zelig. This was really a fabulous interview. Okay. Zygesund, Koltov. Koltov, a good job. Take care. Bye-bye. Joining us is Chaim Kraus. He's the founder of the Jewish Children's Adoption Network, the only one in the Western Hemisphere dedicated to children. Welcome, Chaim. Hi. And how hard is it to adopt a child? You're a parentless uh, couple. You want a child. How hard is it? Uh, it's not very easy. Uh, it depends on what you're looking for. If you want a perfectly healthy newborn baby, there are unfortunately very few of them. We still live in a country where people abort babies left and right, unfortunately. Thousands and thousands of them a year. Um, so there are not a lot of babies. If you're open to an older child or a child with some special needs, the chances are a little better. You say a healthy baby is very few. And when you say very few, it could mean like never? Like what does that mean? Well, it, it depends. I mean, well, the first question is do you only want a Jewish baby? So if you want that, then there aren't very many because why is somebody placing a baby for adoption. For some reason, they got pregnant and didn't want the baby. If it's a from, if it's a baby from a from family, they're not going to be placing a baby for adoption unless something terrible has happened. The parents suddenly died in a car accident, or you know, Shalom, or somebody came down with some terrible mahla or something like that. Um, and if you look at the Reform Jews, unfortunately, they're very pro-abortion, so they don't get very many babies. Uh, you know, sort of, before it happens. So. so when you say it's not, you know, it's hard. Like my wife sends me to the supermarket. She said it's really hard, Erev Yomtiv, to get uh, them grape juice. So I have to go to three supermarkets. It takes me an hour. Like, does this mean it'll take me instead of six months? It'll take me a year, or it could be 20 years. Like, just try to give us a sense of perspective. It could be 20 years. Could who, be 20 years. You know, depends on you know how open you are. Okay, but if you want, if you want a, a from healthy baby, it's basically it's not happening. It's not happening. No. Okay. Now we want to say, I want a not from healthy baby. How difficult is that, or is it the same yeah, thing? No. Slightly better chance. I mean, not obviously not everybody is pro-abortion. There are a number of people, you know, among the conservative or reform or. or Willing, you know, if they got pregnant and didn't want the baby, will make a placement decision. And so there's some babies out there, but not very many. Certainly, the number of people who want to adopt is greater than the number of babies that are available. So, so if I came to you and I said, "Hi, we want to adopt. We want a healthy Jewish baby. We don't care if it's conservative, reform, reconstructionist." You would tell me, David, it would take you how many years? Well, months. I don't know. It's 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 muzzle, right? Everything's up in that. But but give us some try to just no, just give us a sense of expectancy. Which get a child born and they say we need to have a family in Northern California for this baby for whatever reason. I mean, we've had situations. I'll give you an example. We've had a number of cases like uh, we've got a fam uh, a baby that needs a home, but they want the family to be in the Philadelphia area because even though the parents don't want in the picture, they're grandparents who want to be nearby, and so they want the baby to be raised by a family in their neighborhood. So we need a family in Philadelphia. So if you happen to be in Philadelphia, there is. I'll give you a, a, a true example that happened to me a few years back. I get a call from a social worker. She says, you, her first line is, you probably can't help me. You go kind of crazy. <laughs> she starts, why are you calling me that? So but she says, 
Okay, but what's the deal? She says, well, I've been working with this woman. She's mentally deficient because of a birth accident that happened to her. When she was born, she didn't get enough oxygen, so she's she's mentally delayed. But she got pregnant. Somebody impregnated her. She's having a baby. Uh, and it's not something genetic. So the baby should be perfectly healthy. There's no reason or not. But this mother's not mentally able of parenting the child. And I've been working with her. And she suddenly tells me, oh, by the way, I'm Jewish, and I really want a Jewish family. And she's due in three days. Can you help me? I say, okay, where is she? So she's in, in Bergen County, New Jersey, if I remember correctly. Well, I think it was Bergen County. Uh, I, need, I need to have a family that's ready to adopt a baby in three days. Okay, so I make a few phone calls and find a family that Davka lives within a five-minute walk of the hospital that the woman's due to give birth in, and they've had a home study. I mean, they've already been certified for adoption, okay? And I have them call the social worker, and they meet with her and with the birth mom, and everybody likes another, and three days later, they're in the hospital, and they get to take the baby home. Why? Because they happen to live in the right place at the right time. You know, are there other... Is that, is that like, like winning the lottery? Exactly. So it's it's Mazeldik, right? Or, or it's Bashar, however you want to say. They were meant to be available. Now, I had a, another couple of families in their Jersey. Well, I have to think about it. I have to ask my Rob. And you're like, no, you, if you didn't already ask your Rob about adoption, why, why are you in my database? You should have already asked your Rob so when I hear about a baby, you're ready to go. Not to have to call him and wait till Monday because the woman's going to give birth on Sunday. <laughs> I need a family now. So, so that's what happens. He's right person, right place, right time. Here's what I tell people. You're interested in adoption. Besides going to an agency and doing the home study, which is the legal stuff you have to do to adopt, tell everybody you know that you're interested in adoption. I've had people call me up and they say, don't, don't mail me stuff with your return address on the envelope. I don't want people to know I'm looking at adoption. I'm saying, no, that's the wrong cheshbon. You need to tell everybody you're interested in adoption because you never know who will hear about some pregnant girl who's interested in, in finding an adoptive family for a baby. Tell your dentist, tell your doctor, tell your, your grocery clerk, tell everybody you know. If you hear about somebody who wants to place a baby for adoption, I'm interested because you never know. You have to be not be ashamed. That's the first thing. Because the people come in, they're ashamed. They don't, you know, don't be ashamed. Let everybody know that that's what you're interested in. Then you increase your chances significantly. Because you never know, right? Because let's say a girl goes, she's pregnant, and she goes to the doctor, and you know, he's taking care of the pregnancy, but you know, she doesn't want to have an abortion. She wants to find a home for the baby. Uh, if you haven't have told your doctor that you're interested in adoption, he might say, oh, I have this nice family. So you have to let people know. That, that, that's really what's important. Let them know that people know that you're interested. Put up signs, whatever you want to do. Uh, you never know where it will come from. Not say you want a, a non-Jewish baby. How long would it take? All right, there's a slightly better chance. I mean, there are babies out there. Uh, if you're open to that, um, again, it's a matter of luck. If you're in the right place, the agency that finds this particular baby, um, there are babies. I mean, if you go to an agency and you're willing to spend twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, they will find you a baby. Because I know people who looked for literally decades and were not able to find anybody. Right. So it's a matter of what you and, and well-to-do people. But what did they want? You know, if they they wanted a healthy baby. Right. So they wanted a healthy baby, and did they want it to be with a Jewish mother? Or they didn't care. They didn't care. Sure. Yeah, and they waited. And they waited. They literally waited for for a decade, and then they finally found somebody, and then the person changed their mind. Ah, that can happen too. Right. 
It, it's a, it, unfortunately, it's what we hate to say to use the term. It's a seller's market out there. If somebody has a baby, they can make all kinds of demands if you want one, and then they can change their mind. They're not legally required to to let you adopt the baby, even though they told you they were planning to. There's some risk, and that's why it's good to work with a reputable agency that has a lot of experience and has a better sense of is this for real or not. Okay, now let's say somebody says, I don't want a newborn. What would we say? Hey, you want a child? This is realistic. I can get you a child if these are the confessions you want to make. What would they have to look like? Well, there's all kinds of things. You, you go to your local county, they have many, many children in need of homes. In the United States right now, there's something like 140,000 children who need homes. Okay, there's 600,000 kids in foster care, but a lot of them are temporarily in foster care or will be there for a while. It might take a while till they're officially free from their original parents and they're available for adoption. But there are at least 120,000 children in various social service departments in the United States currently available for adoption. If you're willing to take a slightly older kid who's going to have some issues, right? I mean, kids obviously had some loss that he's going to deal with. For whatever reason, he, he was abused, he was neglected, whatever the story was. Uh, he maybe had parents who were alcoholics, who were drug users, whatever. Uh, but if you're willing to take an older kid and deal with issues that that child might have, there are definitely kids out there. If you call, you, if you're in New York and you call a county tomorrow and you really want a kid, they'll find you a kid. That's not an issue if you're open to that. Now, let's say they want a Jewish child. Well, that, that's tricky. Now, New York is the only state that if a Jewish child comes into the system, they have to try to find a Jewish family, at least for the first 60 days, I think it is now. Okay. Uh, anywhere else, they don't care. I've, I've Over the years, we've fought with a lot of agencies who don't see why a Jewish child has to be in a Jewish home. To them, it's not important. They're more interested in the color of the child or, or, or whatever, or the families that they like. They don't see why to them, or, or if, if, you know, if the social worker is, is Christian, they'd rather the kid be Christian. They think that's better. You know, they don't care that the child was born to a Jewish mom. So if I'm a, I'm a Jewish couple, we're willing to adopt, we want it to be a healthy child, a Jewish child. What, what, what type of expectations could we have? Slim, but possible. You know, it's just, uh, and the other thing I would say, uh, a lot of people try for 10, 15 years to do other things and don't succeed, and then they're now 40 years old, and now they've decided they want to adopt. Well, if you've got a girl who's 18 and pregnant and wants to place a baby for adoption, these 40-year-olds to her are grandparents. They're not parents anymore. You know what I mean? So if you wait too long, that's also an issue, okay? Because the babies are usually... You know, not born to 30-year-old moms, they're born to 18, 19, or even 16-year-old girls who got pregnant and are going to place the baby, um, but they're not going to place the baby with somebody who's as old as their parent. And we want to be educated. You're, 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 a, right. you're a parent and you're looking for a child. What's a realistic set of expectations that you could try to have? They could say, they'll say, hi, we, we want a Jewish child. Do you say, well, if, if it's, you want a healthy Jewish child, it's not happening at any age. If you want a sick Jewish child with some type of physical ailments, then it is, like you walk us through. They, they want a child. What's realistic? Well, again, as I say, every situation is different. What, when you say you're open, you know, does that mean you, you take a baby with Down syndrome? Does that mean you'll take a baby with another genetic condition? Let's say they, let's say they want a healthy child, but they don't care about the age. Okay. They'll, they can find one. And it's not a Jewish child, but you can find a child. If you're open to an older child and 
you go down to your county, you can find a child that you can adopt. They're, they're children desperately in need of being adopted in every county in this country. You just have to be open-minded. Now, for kids six, seven, or eight, is going to have issues. I mean, it doesn't mean he's not healthy, healthy physically, but he's going to have emotional issues because what's what's happened to bring him into the into the system that he or she needs needs to be adopted. Obviously, something's happened, been neglected, been abused, something like that. Um, but in most counties, kids like that will also come with a subsidy. They'll 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 pay you monthly payment to help uh, cover psychiatric needs if you need it or, or counseling. Uh, the school system is supposed to help you out also. So uh, you can get help if you're open to a kid who's physically healthy but has some emotional issues. They're out there. They're, they're desperately in need of families for kids like that. Now, how does the the adoption world look at, okay, so you're a couple, you realize you're not going to get a Jewish child, and you're not going to get a, a non-Jewish child who's a baby. So you say, okay, I'll, I'll take a, a non-Jewish child who's five years old, right? Okay. Now, that means the adopted, you know, the government is going to look at it. They say, wait, you're taking Jimmy Jones, and you want to make him Yassel Fischmacher. I mean... That's that's quite that that itself could be incredibly traumatic for the child. How do they look at that? Well, it can be. It depends where the child's been. I mean, you know, I, I encourage you know if you're going that, go down to the agency, be as open-minded as you can, and, and um, you know, let them know that you're open to working with the child. It'll take you know you have to understand it's going to take time for the child to get used to to, to keeping shoppers, keeping customers, and all that stuff. But uh, most workers will be okay with that. Now, maybe not in North Carolina, where there aren't really any Jews, but if you're in New York or, you know, or in New Jersey, they probably will understand, and, and it's okay. And, and if it's an older kid, they'll ask him or her if it's okay with them. But most of the time, the child's been raised with nothing, okay? If you've got a kid who's in the system, he's been neglected, he really hasn't done anything, he has, you know, he's even if he's not Jewish, he's Christian, he probably hasn't gone to church. He probably hasn't celebrated the Christian holidays. Or if he has, it's been so superficially that it doesn't mean anything to this kid. So you're going to give him some structure that might have more meaning than anything he's ever had before in his or her life. Now, the children who are coming, let's say you're adopting a non-Jewish child who's five or ten years old, what age would you say is most common where it's easily to get easier to get one? Well, the older, the easier, but then the older they are, the tougher it is because they've been through a lot more. Right. So what age would you say, here's where you can get a child, or what, what age would you suggest? Yeah, what I see is you get more kids from, say, five and up. You don't get a lot of two, three, four-year-olds. People are I want a toddler. Well, toddlers don't turn up that often because what happens is very often uh, the fact that the child has a problematic situation and needs to be placed in foster care or adoption happens when they start school. They go to school and the teacher notices the kid looks like he never bathes or he doesn't get breakfast or, or he's got wounds on his arm, things like that. That makes it, hey, we better call in social services and see what's going on here. So that usually doesn't happen until they start school around the age of five or six. So you don't get a lot of two, three, four-year-olds. Not to say they're never, but, but they're kind of rare. It's more either as babies because the person doesn't want to take the baby home or once they get to school age and they start being seen by people who are responsible for seeing if kids are being abused and things like that. Right. So 
So you're adopting a seven-year-old child, let's say, and, and I'm sure you've seen these cases. How much trauma has a child undergone by that age, and how reversible is it? Okay. It's a, it's a tough question because some kids are so resilient that they just, just like water off the duck's back. They just fine. They settle into wherever they are, and they're great, and they have no problems. And some kids are so badly traumatized that nothing you do is going to help. And, and it's very hard to predict. That's why when we're dealing with an older kid, I, I encourage people first, take the kid home for a weekend, see how it goes. Take the kids home for a week, see how it goes. Take them home for a, a month. Um and see how it goes. It may or may not work out. Uh, that's why adoptions are require at least six months before they'll finalize an adoption. Bring the kid home. If it doesn't work, you haven't done anything permanent yet. You've got six months to see how things go. And you can see if the child fits in or it's just a total, uh, total mess that you just can't cope with and the child can't cope with. Um, so that's what you do. You, you, but I say some kids are, are resilient. They bounce back from whatever negative things have happened in the past, and they just do great. And some kids just can't. And it's hard to predict. But, you know, sometimes the social workers have a good sense because the kid's been in a facility and they see how well he, he or she is functioning. And sometimes they're just not sure. But that's why some, there's plenty of cases where people have taken their child home and it hasn't worked out. After three, four months, they say, this isn't working. He has to go back to wherever he was in foster care. It can happen, but as I say, there's some kids that... Um, and how many years have you been doing this? 33 years. And how many children have you attempted to place or placed? Uh, it's, it's over 2,000. And what's the success rate as a whole? Oh, it's very high. I, I don't have an exact number, but as I say, you know, I've had situations where it hasn't worked out and the kid is back, but in almost, almost all the cases, if people are, are smart and, and the parents are flexible too, then things will work out. Maybe not always perfectly, but... So you say you do have a high success rate? Yeah. And what's the average age of the children you've you've placed? Ah, that's a good question. Um, I would say a, a lot of the kids we placed are, are babies with medical issues. I mean, that's where we started out with kids with medical issues. Lots, when we first started out, lots of Jewish babies with Down syndrome. Because 33 years ago, there weren't any Jewish schools that took in the kids with Down syndrome. Now we have... Baruch Hashem, we have programs for kids with special needs, schools for kids with special needs, a much more positive attitude in the firm community, so people aren't placing babies the way they used to. So so that's good. So when we started out, boy, lots and lots of babies with Down syndrome. Now it's less. We get babies with other more complicated situations, uh, kids with abuse or neglect. I had a case of a woman was in jail and pregnant and was going to give birth in jail and <laughs> find a family for that baby, uh, all kinds of things. But uh, mostly we get a, a lot of babies and then kids uh, elementary school age, not not necessarily teenagers, younger than that. Do biological parents come knocking on the door sometimes? They change their mind? Well, they can't legally. I mean, once you've adopted them, that's it. They don't have any legal rights anymore. Um, whether they will, you know, whether you maintain an ongoing relationship with them or not is a different story. There's a lot of it. I mean, it used to be adoptions were closed. I mean, starting in, in the 1940s, they, they sealed records, they changed birth certificates, they, you weren't supposed to know who the birth family was and all that, which is kind of crazy because, you know, you go to the doctor and they want to know family history, is it 
child's parents have this or that, and you don't know anything. You don't know nothing. So it's nice if you do have a connection with them that you can find out what's going on in their family. Um, you know, so we have three adopted kids ourselves. We have three biological kids and three adopted kids, and um, we maintain connection with the families uh, of the children. Uh, well, one of them's old enough that, that really no connection much anymore. Uh, but the other two, we speak to the birth family on some kind of regular basis, at least a couple times a year. So they know that child's doing well. And if we have any questions, any any illnesses show up in your family we need to know about for, that might have a genetic component, it's good to know that. And what halachic challenges have you encountered or Shilas over the years? Well, we've had a few situations where there were questions of whether it was mamzirut. We had a situation where we knew the birth mother had given birth to a child with her second husband, and we didn't know if she'd had a gift from her first husband. And we've had had situations where we literally got got a list of all the people who were at her first wedding and sent that to our post who looked at the list and he made phone calls and this and that and the other, and he determined that there was nobody valid at the wedding to, to constitute Adim, and therefore the first wedding didn't count, and therefore there wasn't a question of mom zero. So, I mean, that's two, two cases like that. Um, you know, so that's an issue that can come up if you're looking at Jewish babies, right? If this is a mother's second husband and she didn't get a gift from the first husband, you have an issue. <laughs> If you're open to things, there are kids out there in need of homes. It depends on what you what you're looking for. Hi, that was really moving. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Helpful. Take care. Bye bye. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Hello. I want to thank you very very much. This is Seattle Collinsburg for your Shmakish here every week on top. Um, the first riddle. When I was younger, someone asked me a question about, you know, it says, and we know that Tzadikim don't rot. So what's the Lashon of Atomoy? There's a various Mahalchem, but maybe we could answer with your, to your question also. Um, it was only Atomoy. So Mehmet says, because he davened that he should rot in order that it should be a Kaporo. On, on his averus that maybe he have done, he had done and did in Mitzrayim. And since Yaakov gave him Shechem, he gave him Shechem, so in Melo, in Ari Miklot, the halacha is that we don't go and bury whole Gulf, the Gemara Makkah over there, but Atzama is the Zohisaran. So they were turning him, he was Zechit Shechem, it was a shaykh with him and Shechem of Yaakov's bracha. He had to be buried in Shechem for some reason. So there was no chesaron because it's a, it was Atomis. Maybe this whole dinner with Yerushalmi is maybe Dafka and the whole Gulf, not Atomis. Maybe we could say like that. And also that there was a certain connection that he had with Shechem that Yaakov gave it to him. He had to be Makayim, the bracha. So he had to be returned to Shechem with his Atomis. The second thing is um, about why didn't they ask for Mechilo. At first they thought he was a Roydev when he came down to Mitzrayim. So, Yehissa said, Alikim So, they didn't know if they had to ask Mechilo because, because if Baruch 
he told them that there was something good that came out of it. Something that good came out. Who said that there's the mechila? So Yaakov was trying to tell them and push them to ask mechila. Like we find that Yaakov asked mechila to Yosef on bearing Rachel in on the way, um, so that Kalisa should be able to go on Daven, even though it was a good thing. But still, he asked mechila for from Yosef. So we see even something that's good, something that good came out. From your wrongdoing, you must still have to ask Mechila. And they learned that from Yaakov, and they still did Mechila. And so until now, they didn't ask Mechila. But now, when they saw what Yaakov did, he asked Mechila from Yosef. He buried her in Shechem. So too, they asked Mechila. Shkoyagodi, Shabbat Tocha, and Brocha. Shalom, calling about the riddles for this week. First question about bringing Aronis there to Israel. So if you're not just to say that it's okay for the Shvatim to be brought there because they, after all, lived most of their lives there, but I think the fact that Yosef um, needed to go back to Shechem because of the retribution of Mishchem, that he was taken from Shechem, and therefore he had, they had to bring the, the ship they call Hadanachrai to bring him back to Shechem, I think that might cover the um, the oid is that, along the same lines, Yosef never really left there in Israel. He, in his mind, he was still living in his father's house, and was shtickle on the Talpiyah Diva all those other years, but I think of Chaim Zonafel just to allow people to write for purposes of getting the sites from and things like that, so you have to be a Taishavar, so you have to be born there, I think. But he, was, he would say that you could write that you were born there, because Um, and wasn't Chayshu Yosef such as that, such as that, and maybe they would have no rights, I'll suspect. 
from their fathers, you know, to, to sort of undermine him and 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 to unite him with the Yosef. The does have a tree on them when Yankov seems to hold him out like that. I remember once hearing someone say that really Yankov, you know, did say something that was most of the Mishnah Kama Anfi, and maybe Yankov gave some kind of tzachacha about not bearing grudges, and they assumed that it meant Yosef, and really probably meant them, or probably meant something different. So, well, whatever it is, it wasn't that they made up the story when they said obviously, uh, obviously with Steve Lane, where they were, they they were reading in the Yankov words that way. So again, it was like any of these Mahalchim, it would seem that they didn't realize all the years that Yosef wasn't uh, fully Michael, and that's why now it was uh, renewed to ask ask Mechila. Yeah, I'll just add one thing to what I was saying that it could be that. Um, one more answer, that they thought that for all those 17 years, they had sort of the maximum heel they would get, and they, Abada knew there was more to get, but they didn't think he was granted. So they were waiting for that powerful push of, obviously, Valayman, and now, now that they could say, who is, you know, Asay Bishmil, Koyed Abba, so they were hoping that now he would be Michael more than he had previously given them. Then Abba Wolf, 917, and Hello, my name is Yisrael Kramer. I hope it's not too late to answer the riddles of uh, this past week. Number one, in regards to the Yerushalmi, that indicates that there's an issue of bringing people off to bury an Eretz Yisrael. Firstly, it's not an Isser. It wouldn't be an actual Isser. It's a sensitivity. In which case, if there's a Cheshven against it, uh, a Cheshven to do, you could override it. So, first of all, Yosef could have had the same cheshman that his father had, that he might have been treated as a as a, bizarre, as a deity, and therefore didn't want to put himself in that uh, circumstance, and that would be a cheshman to override the sensitivity of turning Eretzion to uh, a graveyard. Um, just in terms of your bishlama of the uh, the shvatim, uh, saying that they that them weren't living in Eretz. In, in Mitzrayim, they just had to go down. They were forced to stay there. So you would be able to say the same thing about Yosef. First of all, he was only down there because he was sold. And then once he was put in the position of power, there was no way that he cleaved. Uh, if anything, he's less culpable than the brothers. and less, uh, less should be considered as if he's less of a uh, resident of Mitzrayim. They came down on their own volition. He did not. If there would be a bishlama on uh, the Shvatim, there should sure be a bishlama on uh, on Yosef. Lastly, even the sensitivity of the Yerushalmi is very likely that's only once it's settled by Ka Yisrael. If Ka Yisrael is not there, say turning Eretz Yisrael into a graveyard, it could be that's only once Ka Yisrael is settled, and therefore you're able to come up with Ka Yisrael before they settle the land to be buried there. In terms of the first riddle, in terms of the second riddle, the fact that we learn out from the the Russian of the Shvatim after they buried Yaakov that they were asking Mechila the three Lashonos, it's more than the Stavr that they had already asked for Mechila. We know that they had tremendous regret. They, Oliyama Tochach, Oliyama Misa, when they stood in front of uh, Yosef and they recognized what they did wrong, it's uh, not the Stavr they didn't ask Mechila. It doesn't say that they didn't. Alamai, they're asking Mechila now. Well, even if a person asks Mechila and then 
later on, it seems like there's still, uh, the person is still upset. The person should ask Mechila again. So for whatever reason, they suspected that it could be that he was only Mokhalem while Yaakov was alive, and they felt the need to say it again. That's why they're bringing it down now. It's not, uh, it's not indicated at all that they had never asked Mechila. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Sean Parnas. I wanted to leave an answer to your riddle of the week. First of all, your first riddle, now why was Yosef, why did he want to go up to Eretz Yisrael? If he looked at Chutzlar, it's not Yishalmi. So I think it's clear in the Tzitzkim that Yosef did not want to live in the Tzitzkim, unlike the way you said in your question. Yosef was sold there. He was stuck there in jail. He became the Mishnah Malach and Kimavur and Rashi that he... He knew he there was no way he could go up. That's why he had to make a shulos yakev to even go to yakev. He couldn't leave him the time. He was stuck there. So the whole time he was honest. But he's honest, so he could have the same thing as his brothers. That he better moved in Eretz Yisrael. He was just stuck, and therefore he could go back to Eretz Yisrael. Regarding your second riddle about why the brothers didn't ask Mechila for all those years, um, I, I believe the passage of the Tuscan Vegas sounds very much like Yosef told his brothers clearly that he forgives them. Yes, but I'll say he didn't say the Washington Mechila, but it sounds like he had no time on them. It's very possible they understood that to mean that he was Michael then. When I saw after Yaakov died, the Gemara tells us that Yosef stopped being the car of them and he started, you know, not having them eat with him. So it could be at that point they started thinking, started realizing that maybe Taka he never forgave them, and that's why they came out to ask him to heal. Call those.